0: Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you wait before the show, as you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game podcast
1: we are live all right cool hey everybody welcome back to harvest nature's wild fishing game podcast you got your host here justin townsend and uh today we got a another great guest uh to have a, a great conversation with and i'm going to introduce them here in just a moment but uh i'm going to give you a little bit of updates about what's going on sort of in my world and then uh, i'm gonna let Corey pass on some updates and we'll we'll go there so uh as far as me uh For those that are are watching, which is two individuals in this podcast, no one else is watching me. I'm like sunburnt from my eyes down. Uh, I spent a day on the water yesterday and uh, uh, got a good amount of sun uh, while out fishing in the backcountry here in the Florida Keys. So, uh, great trip. I can't wait to share all the awesome content and recipes and food from that little excursion with you all, which will be coming up uh, soon. I'll say sooner rather than later. I'm not going to give away dates or make promises, but it's coming down the road. Um, also, uh, looking forward to spring bear coming up and uh, the possibility of doing some spring turkey um, in Florida and, and maybe some other places, so we'll see. But uh, that that's quickly approaching us as, uh, as the, I guess, quote-unquote thunder chicken season arrives. Um, but yeah, Corey, what updates you got? Um, not a whole lot going on here. The, uh,
2: I think our ice fishing season is pretty much over with. We actually went shed hunting after, uh, after work and school today. And my wife was able to find a little one today. So first one of the season. Oh, nice. But now I'm going to start focusing on, uh, scouting for turkeys and start getting out there in the mornings and evenings. See if I can locate some flocks. So looking forward to that looking forward to the spring weather
1: yeah what is it is it uh warming up there
2: yeah we were we've been in like the 30s and 40s this week so uh, it's
1: warm comparatively to what we've had still cold but (laughs) 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 all right well uh do you want to talk about what's going on in the world of the adventures for food podcast we're still
2: recording episodes. Um, we have a bunch of recordings all lined up, um, and they are actually uh, listeners Harvest, harvesting the Wild Fishing Game podcast. Listeners have wrote in and uh, said they had stories to tell, so I'm gonna put the invite out to to all the listeners that if you have a story to tell that you'd like to tell on the Adventures for Food series, please email. What's cooking at harvestingnature dot com? We'd love to hear your stories.
1: yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear them and share them too. Uh, if you think something's cool, something unique it doesn't have to be a success story either. like um, hunting and fishing stories, although many will say are weighed in success or failure, I think it's uh, there's a lot of cool things to share out there, no matter what the outcome is. So yeah. And uh, I'll go ahead and plug our Facebook community page. Go over, head over to Facebook and check that out. So it's uh, the Wild Fishing Game Community. Go ahead and join. And once you join, invite some folks to join too. Cool place to share tips, tricks, recipes, all that stuff, and interact with, uh, with the Harvesting Nature crew pretty much on a day-to-day basis, actually. So, uh, And also, too, our, our friends over at Allen Company offered a great coupon for our listeners so if you go over to their website, shop some great products. If you look in your closet or drawers, I'm I'm almost certain you probably have something made by Allen Company already. Uh, great products that are equally dependable. And uh, click over to their website. Brand new website. Looks great. And uh, when you check out, punch in that HARVEST10 code, and I'll give you 10% off your order. Website is buyallen.com. B-Y-A-L-L-E-N.com. There you go by com. so all right i'm gonna go ahead and introduce our guests so we can get into the meat of the conversation uh so our guest today is a writer hunter angler forager and wild cook he's been nominated for a james beard award for best web series on location and visual and technical excellence for the series from the wild a journey in wild food welcome kevin coswin thanks thanks for having me i hope i said that right you did actually right on well done (laughs) Woo! nice thank you (laughs) good start good start (laughs) welcome to uh wild fishing game podcast if you could tell us tell us a little bit about yourself where you're from uh where you spend most of your time and and kind of how you got into the outdoors
3: sure um wow uh i i guess to kind of start a bit from the beginning i i do um film for a living so i Actually, work in mostly in the world of food and pointing cameras at things. Um, Lots of TV lately. We have got a show on PBS called uh, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest with Les Stroud's Riverman guy and good friend of mine. And uh, I've got From the Wild, so we've been, which is on um, network television in Canada. So I'm from Western Canada. I'm in Edmonton. Uh, We do most of our hunting, fishing, foraging um, in Western Canada. So Uh, I'm blessed to live in a spot where we have access to the boreal uh, in a couple of weeks. We're up in the Rockies, way up in the Rockies, uh, near Jasper, Banff, that kind of area. Um, We hunt pronghorn in the grasslands and we have badlands that look kind of like Utah. And then we've got the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Northwest uh, to the west of us. So we do a lot of ocean uh, foraging and fishing uh, there too. So we have kind of, uh, the more I've traveled for my work, the more I've realized we're really, really lucky to, to be where I am. I grew up mm-hmm. hunting and fishing and foraging. Um, grew up on moose meat primarily, and uh, I would say that we we picked mushrooms, we picked fruit, we picked, we hunted, but but like one bird, we we ate rough grouse, and one ungulate, we ate uh, moose, and one berry, highbush cranberry or viburnum trilobum. And since then, uh, I've ended up in this really uh, unexpected career path of exploring the intersection of wild food and culinary because i work a lot in the international culinary scene i guess uh with uh fairly posh chefs and michelin starred and everything uh from kind of around the world so uh we have culinary guests primarily it's not so much about or ever about really hunting a a trophy of any kind other than uh the destination on our show is is a plate of food so uh that's kind of what i do and my background
1: Cool. I, I think that's a, it's such a, a interesting way you put it at the end. I really like that. Like the destination is the plate, which is cool.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That really has, has been the guiding force behind what we've done. Um, and and it, for a few reasons, one of which is because the, you know, backup, we're in season eight of the, of the series right now. Uh, we started backup kind of when Mediator was being born. And before that there wasn't really a lot of kind of culinary content Uh, In the world of hunting and fishing, especially, never mind foraging, which is still pretty niche. But, um, yeah, there was kind of just a gaping hole in exploring what the kind of food potential was because Big Game had been, for a lot of years, kind of, you know, the cookery of it was pretty banal. And uh, people like Hank Shaw, who started since... I did down on, he's food writer in California um there's just been a ton of people who have blown open kind of the food and, and wild food scene which is great um, but we were one of those people up in Canada doing the job here
1: awesome I think it's cool yeah we've had we've had Hank on the show we had some great conversations definitely like one of the I would say in, in the states one of the the founding leaders of the the wild food movements and sort of getting a lot of people I know he was his book was one of the first ones I ever purchased uh which was cool so it opened up a a a lot of gateway uh for many many people
3: yeah a fun fact of the day for that with hank is that uh when i first started writing online um about wild food hank was still a political journalist and was commenting on my (laughs) blog back in the day and uh he i was encouraging like dude you know a lot about this you should write about food and and da, hanks now hank has been on our show a few times too so and here he is, uh, well down a different career path, as am I. I'm formerly finance. I spent 14 wow. years in the world of finance. So.
1: That's awesome, yeah. Very
3: different world, but uh, a um, fun one.
1: It's crazy. I, I love to hear people's stories. It's like everybody moves around until you sort of find a way to do do what you really enjoy, which is awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about recipes. I, I admit that I've been stalking you a little bit on your Instagram, but uh, there's some great content there. And uh, I, I think Corey shared it with me first was the, uh, your buck neck confit, uh, the, the picture. So I kind of wanted to, to dive a little deeper into that and, and sort of hear your thoughts and ask some questions, of course.
3: Yeah. Uh, just as an in- intro, um, that dish, I'm glad you're into it. Cause I'm, that was really proud of that one. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot of cookery in the field that is, uh, I don't know, just more relatable and easy. And, and this one was a bit challenging in that I had shot a buck. It was a mature buck. We usually shoot younger age class animals, um, kind of have been arguing for years that in the world of agriculture, we eat young animals. And in the world of, of wild game, we tend to mm-hmm. harvest old animals. And instead of selecting young ones, which are typically a better food outcome. Anyway, uh, this year I'd shot a, a bigger, more mature whitetail buck. And um, in trying to decide what to do to, uh, I guess, best represent that animal. Um, I was also butchering a couple does a mule doe and a, a white tailed doe and realized that the neck size is was a massively different factor uh, on a buck. Uh, last year we boned out 22 pounds of boneless meat off of a mule deer neck and a doe might have, I don't know, two to three okay. pounds. So it's a huge difference. So I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to do something with this neck. I'm going to cook it low and slow as as one should do uh, and this buck also had a ton of fat on it. And so, uh, as Hank, Sean, and I have discussed in the past, I, uh, you should, you know, give it a, give it a warm up in a pan and smell it and make sure it's, it's kind of got the flavor profile that you'll be happy with. And in this case it did. And I had tons of it. Like I had, uh, I filled a, a small, I guess a medium sized pot. So I probably had about wow. four liters or a gallon of it. And, uh, yeah. And so in went the, in went the neck and I, I cooked it f- slow for hours and hours and hours until a, the meat was fork tender and pulling pulling apart, and knew that the fail point in this in this idea was if I couldn't get the waxy fat off of it, uh, that the mouthfeel would be mm-hmm. unpleasant. So the the idea was to take it then and bring it to. We went and actually started a fire right where we harvested that deer in the bush, and then. Uh, grilled grilled that piece of neck and it got really crispy kind of potato chip crispy on the outside and all the fat rendered off and we pulled it and put it on top of a baked potato that was cooked in the fire with sour cream and pickled red onions and jalapenos and um oh i forget we had it's just it was a killer it was a killer dish and, and it made me so happy that it actually turned out because the concept really made sense uh technically and uh Sometimes those things mm-hmm. still fail despite, you know, making sense in your head. But in this case, it really, really, really worked. So it meant for me that whitetail fat isn't just bird food in In the future, that whitetail fat can be, you know, put directly to use because if it is left on in your in your freezer, it is gross. After time, it goes rancid. And I'm particularly not a fan of rancid fat. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's it's pretty perishable, as you know. Uh, so it means that the, the fat goes into a confit pot and you confit the heck out of like neck cuts and shoulder cuts and shanks and whatever, and enjoy the heck out of that because it's such a unique treat that I've never, having done this for a long time, I've never, I've never eaten that before.
1: I think it's great because it's definitely like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it at the top for something that I would immediately think to do. Uh, you know, especially like you get, you get in the. Yeah, you get right, in the well, game me of like, all right, I'm processing, and prioritizing like what cuts I need to make, what needs to go where, what needs to get stored quickly or not stored quickly or aged or, you know, you know like the whole process. So I, I really respect uh, sort of that out-of-the-box thinking to do it quick and then uh, make the decision to go with it. And I, I think it's a really good tip that you shared, uh, and I hope the listeners caught it, but saying like taking the fat – Putting it in a pan, warming it up and and giving it the smell test and kind of, and, and that understands uh, helps you understand sort of the relationship of how the flavor is going to come out uh, from that fat.
3: Yeah. It, yeah. That's important. And I think uh, the same could be said for waterfowl. Actually, I have the same approach for geese, but um, sup- I guess kind of surprisingly the, the flavor of of deer fat is actually pretty pleasant um it's just when it i think we often experience it Mm -hmm. when it's off and so that's kind of what's in our head is what deer fat should be but when it's fresh it's pretty great but it does taste it it does have a mouthfeel of a candle let's make no mistake about that you do have to figure (laughs) out how to to mitigate that
1: i don't recommend it ice cream scooping it nope (laughs) no agreed so do you think in in the world of talking fats, and I, I spent a lot of time talking uh, uh, last episode recorded uh, about fats, but um, do you think that as far as, uh, as venison fat goes, that it's very diet-based as far as the flavor and, and kind
3: of what it comes out in your experience? That's a good question. Um, and I'm going to say I don't know entirely. I mean, these deer were eating oats yeah. uh, at the time um, you know, like with the, with the fat taste different there, I've been to that field recently and they're not eating oats anymore. They're just browsing right now. So maybe, maybe the fat tastes different now, if they're feeding on willow and the tops of fruit and hazelnut and that kind of stuff. So I I don't know. Um, it's a good question. Um, as you know, with black bears, that's certainly a thing here. You pay attention Mm -hmm. to that. Um, but uh, with deer, I'm not sure.
1: The, the approach and the thought behind what I was thinking is, is sort of, you know, in North America, there's the big debate of like mule deer versus white tailed deer. So I kind of want to table that as far as like two types of deer, right? And I, I'm looking more at diet uh, and the diet of white tailed deer and even mule deer, I think, vary uh, f- depending on the environment in which they have it, inhabit. Like, that's there's no doubt about that. Like, they're going to eat different based on what's available to them. Like, do they eat off a of cornfield, do they eat off sage flats or, you know, wh- whatever food they have. And I don't know, I've been really into sort of trying to look more into how the the diet of an animal affects the flavor. And it's something very, uh, I find it interesting, but it's hard to pinpoint, too, because there's so many variables, too. Like age plays into effect and all the other
3: factors. Mm hmm. I could speak to that a little bit, because we have a unique opportunity here in the world of whitetail deer, as an example. Um, We harvest whitetail deer in the grasslands, uh, which is like flat prairie where there's actually bison and pronghorn. And then we Mm -hmm. also harvest most of the deer uh, that we shoot. The whitetails are up in the boreal forest where there's no crop. They're not feeding on agriculture at all. They're eating uh, whatever's in the forest. That's it and I mean, forest for like hundreds of kilometers and that's, there's just nothing for agriculture. So I would, and I wouldn't say that I've seen a big flavor difference between those two locations. Um, Like you say, there's, there's um, other factors with age class and that kind of thing. But um, on the whole, I wouldn't say that white tailed deer are as responsive to feed as, as say, like we, like I mentioned black bears, which absolutely are. And and, and would be a completely, uh, you know, you select where you're hunting those things for sure when you're talking about food.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to do my first, uh, well, not my first black bear hunt, my first fully planned black bear hunt coming up, uh, in a couple of months out in Oregon. So it's all uh, oh, right on. Yeah. Looking f- looking for some spring bears. Hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully the berries are in at the same time too. So I'm
3: kind of looking to do a little pairing with that as well. Cool. Yeah, we do. Um, we when we started the series, we were. I was very averse to uh, bear hunting. I did, I'd never done it. Uh, I didn't want to point cameras at it and get crapped on um, by haters. So I just decided, oh, no. And then got talked right into it. It's like, let's just have a look at what what it's about. And so we uh, got into uh, a two or three bears, I think, on that first hunt and. Uh, learned very quickly that they're a, quite a desirable food outcome actually they're delicious eating and uh, ever since then we, I think last spring we harvested four and and we, so we, we harvest about three four bears a year now, uh, both spring and in the fall so it's become a real staple for us, which was just not expected.
1: Yeah, I I mean the the bear that I have had I've had, you know, um meat given to me by friends like from up in Alaska and stuff and, and the meat's been phenomenal. And so I'm uh I'm excited to to go down that path. So
3: Good. Enjoy it. Enjoy the path.
1: <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. I've heard some uh some discouraging things from the as far as the terrain where we're going to be hunting at in Oregon, but that's okay. Uh, I'm up <laughs> for a good challenge.
3: It's gonna be hard, is it?
1: Yeah, I think so. A lot of uh, verticals, and you know, I live right now on like a three by five island that's mostly flat. (laughs) So um, we'll we'll see. You get hit the (laughs) stairmaster.
3: Yeah, I hear you, man. Our next trip in a couple weeks is going uh, into the way up into the Rockies, into a valley perched in the Rockies, and we have to climb a kilometer back and 900 feet of elevation just to get to our camp from where we're fishing for lake trout. So it's going to be a slog in and there's still a lot like knee deep snow and then it's Ooh. not warm. So it's it's going to be a thing, <laughs> but it's okay. Wow. those are fun adventures, man. Those, yeah. That's, they're worth I mean, in.
1: that's what makes it. That's what makes the, you know, sort of, you've got the two different parts of it, the food part and the, the adventure part for sure. And it helps add to both. Um, Corey, do you have do you have any questions about the the as we were talking about it?
2: No, it just it looked like an amazing dish. So you know, talking with you and Wade and Rachel, it gives me some some confidence to try it on my own. Good, do it.
1: Yeah, I think all these uh, uh, the conversations and man, I I hope I hope the listeners are catching on to the same of like. Uh, uh, this year, I want to put a lot of attention into sort of testing and, and using and and messed around with with different game fats too. I think it, it's a cool adventure
3: uh, as well. So one of the one of the more unusual ones that we've used in the past with good success is actually uh, moose bone marrow. That's one thing that we again put folded into quite a few dishes and over and over and over is just great really really good
1: how uh so can you give me an example of how you incorporate that into a dish
3: i can uh we had a bear bratwurst for a culinary event that had m- uh, moose mayonnaise on it so it was a ma- mayonnaise wow. made out of moose bone marrow uh we've had like meat meatballs with where the fat component of the ground uh moose was was marrow and they've had just like straight rendered marrow as uh, cooking fat, like you would use butter or lard or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. So I've done a few different things. And, and like I said, every time it just kind of seems to work out. The other one we use a ton of is, is black bear fat. Mm-hmm. So that requires a, a good fall bear. But, but, um, but boy, that's a, that's a treat too in the kitchen, as you know.
0: You ready? Showtime. So looking at
1: some other, so I, I mentioned earlier, like before we started recording, pronghorn is definitely one of my favorite uh, favorite meat out there, um, and and you 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 affirmed that as well from your side. But um, correct, yeah. So uh, for any of those who are listening, go go check out uh, Kevin's Instagram. There's a picture on there. I think like three or four lines down, you'll see it. It's, it's pretty beautiful. Um, and then you mentioned uh, I think it was the. Low, low bush cranberry or low bush cran as well in that dish?
3: Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that was in that dish. Um Maybe I was looking at but That was oh there was low bush there was low bush cranberry in the in the pronghorn burger. Yeah, there yeah. was. Okay. There was a low bush cranberry jam, yeah.
1: Um So first off, standard burger, ground fat, all that other jazz. Um
3: yeah, a standard burger, except it was made by, by a guy who's on our team that is, uh, owns a slaughterhouse and has dealt with more meat than you or I ever will. He's killed 10, 20,000 animals at the abattoir. And so he hand minced the pronghorn and, um, yeah, incorporated the fat, grilled it over some, actually the, the John, one of the guys on our crew had made the mountain ash charcoal at his farm <laughs> that it was grilled over um, and on and on it went. So yeah, we've, oh, and the bun was made from corn that John had grown and corn pieces in it to give it some texture that we had picked from the ground where the mule deer were feeding <laughs> out of oh, the wow. cornfield they were feeding it and wrecking the farm. So we just kind of pulled all kinds of stuff together on that episode. And actually that same day I made a dish out of uh, white fronted goose and we, while we were shooting geese, we were picking the peas that the combine had left and then a bunch of peas had sprouted. So we had like fresh pea pods and pea flowers and pea tendrils. And I cooked the yellow peas into like a mash and served it with white fronted goose. So that's kind of our jam is taking you know, what, what you find around you and, and, uh, figuring out what the best culinary Mm -hmm. use of it and getting it on a plate so that was a that was a bit of a highlight of season seven that was a keeper that one
2: yeah that was a good one i love that everything's like full circle the meat the you know your deer the deer are eating on the corn you have the corn incorporated into the bun i love how it's all just connected
3: yeah and one of the things i I try to encourage people I, i teach um foraging i take people on foraging walks for plant and mushroom id through from may through october and I'm usually uh, preaching that we should kind of look at the, the stuff that's under our boots as food. Um, almost always, there's more species that are that are uh, usable in the in the bush or in the wild than than not. So uh, we're kind of always looking to to what's you know what what's around and what does Mother Nature have on offer. Uh, we've kind of abandoned the going to a place and looking for a particular species. We'll still do that sometimes, but often. For example our spring hunt has become yeah it was a spring bear hunt originally but now uh, the rabbit population is great we're usually harvesting snowshoe hares uh, last spring we were harvesting horsetail and dandelion and fiddleheads and um, fireweed shoots and marsh marigold and on and on and on and um, so it really has become a ecosystem and seasonal driven harvesting which i would encourage lots of people to kind of open their mind to because sometimes you uh, You'll be failing like we were on an elk hunt once and find 40 pounds of mushrooms and shoot a bunch of grouse and just realize you have to stop and smell the roses and change gears and change the tack of your hunt and focus on what actually is there. So we've learned that lesson a bunch of times so we really have we really pay attention to that now.
2: I was watching the trailer to I believe it was season six and and the woman that you were interviewing, I, I can't remember her name, but she said she, you know talk about things, but those things were everywhere. Like yeah, they're everywhere. Take advantage of them. So yeah, I like I like that mindset.
3: That was Lisa Cutcliffe from England. You should follow her too. She's uh, Edulous Wild Foods in in Leeds, and yeah, she was mentioning exactly that. We were picking nettles, and she said people just ignore it because it's everywhere. And but that's exactly why you should be eating that stuff. Is because it's everywhere. So it's a it's it's a yeah it's a philosophy that we uh, we carry it with us. It ends up in our show, but we also preach it pretty hard.
1: I think it's, uh, uh, I like both, I like both those notes uh, and thoughts of like, and I I try to do the same, Um, you know, I'll go out, identify like, hey, there's a a primary species I want to go hunt, but it's like, what else is in season at the time? And like, am I going to have time to go fish or like, you know, uh, do they have a lot of states here? Some have two or three day fishing license and some you have to buy the full license. So it's like, you know, what, what kind of commitment do I want to go through? Uh, with that. Or if, if we're struggling with weather, fighting other things, it's like, it, if we have to choose between hunting or fishing, like usually we're going to lean towards the hunting side. Um, just because,
3: but I have an example for you. You mentioned turkey hunting earlier and we don't have, well, I shouldn't say that, but we, we have a very small population of wild turkeys in Alberta. So it's not something we really hunt here. Um, but at, we went and did that out east with, um, a really well-known chef in, in Ontario. And, um, we were after a turkey and weren't doing great at it but in the meantime harvested probably 6 to 800 dollars worth of chaga and maybe a couple hundred bucks worth of morels and ramps and pheasant back mushrooms and violets and uh and all kinds of stuff it was crazy and it really was again one of those moments where i thought wow we really were obsessing about the turkey when there's all kinds of other stuff around that we should probably pay attention to
2: i've i've been in the same Situation with a friend hunting spring gobbler, and we're hurry up and setting down, getting set up, and you know listening to the turkey gobble. And I look around, I'm like, I'm in all these wild ramps, and like I start digging them up and throwing in my pack as as we're trying to coax that turkey to come in. So
1: right on, yeah, that's a cool. um I can't say I'm trying to think. I think more it's ended up with me like taking rabbit or squirrels, or like shifting gears into into smaller game if I'm focusing on big, or I mean as far as like fishing wise, I've, I've got a pretty tight knit group down here that we go fishing with. And, and some of the guys are pretty selective about the fish that they will keep. Uh, you know, we're talking saltwater fishing and I, and I'm always the first one to be like, no, like we can use that. Or, you know, yeah, that's not a trash fish. Like we should definitely be trying it out or like, we've caught it, the, you know, it swallowed the hook. Like, let's, let's keep it anyway and just give it a go and see if it's good. And, you know, through that, like, we we've discovered we we enjoy we as a family uh enjoy uh some fish that other people are kind of quick to toss and i'm like man you guys are missing out it's just uh you just got to be willing to jump out there and just give it a go so heck yes and same here yeah and i will caveat i will caveat that though and i will say that i've also tried some of those fish and they've been not good uh so, oh, fair enough yeah fair enough but uh i mean that could be a fault of my own maybe i need to learn how to try to prepare them better i think it's cool yeah i'm digging it
3: yeah and that humility will go a long way man i oh. I, I, I actually think that more often than not that is the case is just our our lack of awareness on how to approach them in the mm-hmm. kitchen and that's again that's kind of fundamentally what motivates me is how do you how do you okay fine it's not an optimal food it doesn't taste it's not as tender as beef tenderloin it doesn't taste like pronghorn fine but what what could you do with it what what does it work what direction does it want to be taken and what cultural lens might make that particular ingredient shine so that's again the kind of questions we're asking
1: you said cultural lens
3: yeah we've had chefs uh, uh Dasan. she's a british uh indian chef Mm -hmm. so she brought indian cuisine into the field with us uh which brings a whole different layer of spices and flavors and technique we've worked with um a chef from bahrain uh in the middle east to bring middle eastern flavors to mule deer and sharp-tailed grouse and that kind of thing that kind of kind of beg for a little bit more of a a flavor to like to go along with them not to bury them I, i prefer to think of you know spicing something uh, more assertively as kind of meeting it where it's at, more than just burying it in flavor. So we've taken we've taken the wild foods, th- you know, thing into a few different um, cultural lenses, not just the Canadiana Western Canadian, you know, food lens.
1: Cool. I, I definitely respect that. And and I was thinking, sort of in that in the same moment uh, as you mentioned that, is looking back sort of in my own errors with maybe not preparing fish and then sort of a way to further learn uh, from things that may or may not is to look back at different cultures, to look back sort of any history and see how people were preparing, or if they were, we're not preparing this fish, you know, uh, a while ago, because I'm sure it's evolved. And as, as culture has evolved as a whole, like, we've We've dropped foods because we've got the availability of other foods, and so maybe finding a an older recipe or something that that mentions it may a good maybe a good a good direction to head absolutely yes do you have any other recipes that you're really really digging right now that uh or any that you're testing out playing around with
3: um well, I'm doing, I'm doing a ton of research right now on, uh, I'm actually getting a, a sea kayak guiding designation um, this summer. So I'll be doing a lot of uh, ocean. I'll be about a month on the ocean this year. And so that's kind of where a lot of my brain's at. But one of the recipes that's kind of coming up, I heard you guys talking about seasonality and being excited for spring and what spring brings. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, um, in the spring, one of my favorite dishes to make is is a chowder. And uh, we're usually eating... Uh, chowder in Spring Bear Camp or or Spring Camp because um, the last day, the day before Spring Bear season is ice fishing season closed. So we're just sitting on all this fish, you know, canned and frozen and fresh and all pickled and you name it. Uh, so we're eating fish in camp, and um, and so chowder usually is is order of the day uh cream in camp is always welcome for the calorie boost uh fiddleheads and other greens will go into that uh and one of the things that i love putting in that chowder is taking those lake fish that we have here uh and adding seaweeds from the west coast into it to kind of give it that marine uh vibe uh which which makes for one heck of a delicious chowder so we've done that a bunch of times that's something that i'll be looking forward to um, right now I've just been canning fish and, uh, smoking fish, pickling fish. It's that season here. You guys are winding up on your, uh, it's pretty funny to hear your guys' is reality. We still have three feet of ice in the lake. So, um, oh. we're not done fishing yet and we'll be on, uh, we'll be on lake trout next. So that's, that's what our next episode is. And that's still two weeks from now. Our primetime ice fishing is in March Okay, and the lakes, ice is off the lakes in, uh, kind of late April, May, early May. Nice.
1: Wow. It's uh, and I'm thinking like, like, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in like the Southern part of the United States. So I, it's a hard comparison for me for any of it. Yeah, you but are. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm thinking like, man, it's already, so it's, it's already 81. It's in the eighties here, like steadily now. Um, our, our winter was very short lived.
3: Yeah. And we're worried about freezing our butts off on this trip, even with winter gear, because it could be quite cold. So, um. Yeah, oh. it's you know, it was it was 30 some below Celsius like 2 weeks ago here, maybe 35 below. Holy so it's smokes. it was proper cold recently.
1: Yeah, that is very very cold. Um I don't want to get hung up cuz I'll I'll get hung up talking about my disdain for the cold, but it's all right. Um <laughs> <laughs> So let's see. So let's talk a little bit about uh, cooking in the outdoors. Was something we we wanted to to chat with you about because I I know you've got some some camps and some educational opportunities set up uh, here in the future. But I I kind of want to pick your brain uh, a little bit more about just cooking and, and moving cooking over fire and moving in in that direction. But um. Because I know there's a lot of elements that lead up to it. And, and one, I know not every fire is created equal and, and I want to get sort of some some thoughts from you uh, as far as like woods or woods that you prefer uh, or, or is it just anything available? What, what would you normally go route wise?
3: Interesting that you ask. Mm, okay, well the easiest way to answer this in, this question is to kind of talk about how we teach this stuff um, and why I teach this stuff. I, I, again, I have a busy film career, but the um, but there was a kind of a gaping hole in Canada uh, of this wild cookery field cookery uh, kind of idea. Um, and I visited a guy by the name of Nick Weston of hunter gatherer cook in England. He's in Sussex and has an amazing um, school that I was able to just go visit and hang out and, and film them and got got inspired to do something similar in Canada. So last year we ran our first year of courses and we'll be doing it again. I teach forging walks, but our big, huge, long workshop day, uh, I teach people how to cook out of a backpack. So basically like light kit, bush cookers, the little guys, Mm -hmm. the little um, secondary gas burner type, little bush buddy stove things, uh, how to cook out of those, uh, use like the little uh, isobutane stoves, um, and again, just kind of light cookery, you're out for the day, uh, hiking, fishing, whatever. Um, how do you make some decent food that wraps in some of the stuff that's in your environment uh, and make a quick good meal that's connected to that place in that time? Uh, so that's that's one part of what we teach. The, the uh, Then it goes into our base camp in that space, uh, which has a chef there and, a, and our culinary team and we'll run uh, I guess five courses for them with, uh, foraged tea pairings and, um, and like, uh, forged cocktails and stuff. And then, um, in that we teach pantry building and fire cookery in a base camp, because when you're base camp cooking, you have opportunities to use things like, uh, you know, like a piece of grill or a permanent piece of structure, like a rocket stove, or uh, build a tripod and swing a cast iron uh, Dutch oven for a few hours to braise some meat, that kind of stuff. So, um, in that location, we have to answer your question very indirectly, we have uh, what I call a wood library. It's a gigantic round wood timber uh, woodshed that has um, kind of columns in it. And there's a really good picture of it at fromthewild.ca on Instagram. But uh, it's columns of different species of wood, so that the chefs that are in camp have an opportunity to cook with either tamarack or white birch or spruce or alder or aspen or whatever. Um, and then we have various smoking woods uh, in there too. So uh, it's it's with the intent of the or the idea of um, Reconnecting people with this idea that firewood's not just this neutral thing like Mm -hmm. propane in a tank on your gas barbecue. Uh, They all have different properties um, burning wise, but they also have different properties uh, flavor and aroma wise. Um, And I would say that people up in Canada have a propensity to be using uh, woods that you guys use down in the States like hickory and mesquite and that kind of thing to smoke. But we don't have those woods here that has nothing to do with the forest here so we're trying to encourage people to use um you know the nut woods and the berry woods and and stuff like alder that really does uh impart beautiful flavor to food so uh that's kind of what i teach and um and how we approach wood uh at that camp nice
1: so you mentioned sort of equipment wise uh having a fixed object if you're cooking out of a base camp i guess Without going too much into, I want I want people to go
3: attend your classes, not listen to the podcast and get all the goodies for sure. No, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, it's okay. People that come to the pod, to the events are just live around here, so it's not. It's I don't think you know, to ruin my market. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, Happy to share.
1: Uh, as far as like cooking over the fire, looking at special equipment, wise, uh, could you sort of give kind of a range from like the easiest to use to so like something more complex that you would use, like you mentioned sort of tossing a grate using a rock versus like setting up a tripod to,
3: to put a Dutch oven over. Uh, like, well, what- yeah, I can go, I can do this. Uh, simple example. Um, when Hank Shaw was on in season three, um, and he does not cook over fire a lot because as he mentioned, he lives in California. You don't start fires on Mm-mm. purpose. There is how he put it.
1: Nope. Um, nice
3: So he he loved it, but I gave him a chunk of rock and he grilled uh, goose breast and ruffed grouse whole skin on on a chunk of slab of rock I'd brought from the Rockies and stuck on the fire. So there's basic. And I would say that one of the advantages of rocks around a campfire is um, they're great for baking potatoes and they're great for uh, like roasting sausages. Because you don't have any mess. You don't need a grill. You don't need anything. You just put the sausages around your fire and leave them on the rocks. And to clean up the fat and stuff, you kick the rocks into the fo- coals when you're done. Um, I'm a big fan of that style of cookery. And we, uh, for most the most part, use sticks and really boring technology. Because they just work so darn well for most cooking things. And on the complex side... Um, when we had uh, an Indian chef come in, she had requested that we make a tandoor uh, or asked if it was possible. So we actually built a tandoor out of mud um, and, and fire bricks and stuff so that she could make na- naan in the bush. And so that would be on the more complex side. And that would kind of be related to, I've built quite a few um, cob ovens or earth ovens. And uh, and those are a good example of if you're if you frequent the same place over and over and over, uh, and you've got clay or rock or stone in the area, uh, you can build permanent structures like ovens uh, in those in those spaces. So right now we rely heavily on rocket stoves, and I would really recommend looking that up if you want kind of a, a fuel-efficient, tidy, nice, fire-safe way to cook in the forest at a at a base camp. Uh, like a brick rocket stove is a really great option. And again, our, our Instagram's got photos of that. We cook with it a lot.
1: Cool. Um so let's, I guess, talk uh, uh, as far as like what what to do and what not to do when when approaching cooking. Like, what are what are some definite no nos that you would tell people? Like, obviously, a, a prime example is like with Hank Shaw. Like, we don't start fires in California on on purpose. Um, so, kind of moving those out. Any any tips or tricks that you would share?
3: Huh. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, that basic fire safety one. I know you want to dodge it, but it's actually really super important. Mm -hmm. Um, Only only in that, you have to be prepared uh, accordingly in case there's a fire ban here. That's that's for sure a thing, especially in the spring, it can get dry in May here when we're in the bush. So uh, there's a very decent chance that when you go out, you won't even be able to start a fire. So if your entire plan's built around fire cookery, you better have a backup plan. Um, So that's kind of step one. Uh, Other than that, It's kind of uh, simple stuff like have multiple skills to start a fire because I've been in in the field many times with very competent people where starting a fire has been a major problem because it just poured rain and everything is soaked. You're surrounded by hundreds of kilometers of trees and forest and tinder and everything, but it's all wet to the point where you just cannot start it. So I my I have a fire kit that's got um dry birch bark in it all the time everywhere I go doesn't matter what kind of thing because I've just been on the wrong end of it too many times um and that and uh have other skills if your lighter doesn't work or your ferro rod's lost or broken or whatever so we've done an episode where we went winter camping in middle of February you wouldn't want to go on that when it was like really cold the trees were popping in the cold and uh and we didn't bring a lighter. We didn't bring anything. We skidooed in, and then we parked the sled. got The sled got stuck in a snowbank, so we snowshoed back into this birch forest, and uh, with and we found some chaga and got some cattail and hand drilled a fire. So while that's not oh, wow. something you need to know how to do all the time, um, those are those are handy skills to be able to to at least have in your head if you get if you get stuck and need to get, get out of a bind. Now, beyond that, I would say that the simple cookery that people do on fire is generally going to be centered around meat cookery. And if we're talking specifically around meat cookery, uh, my best advice I can give you is make sure that you temper your meat. Okay. Maybe two or three key points here. You temper your meat before it's a culinary term for letting things warm up. Mm -hmm. You do not want ice cold or cold meat going onto a grill. Don't cook it. We've got this idea that we have to sear red meat all the time. That is not necessarily the case. Uh, Cook it. Go easy. Go on medium heat. um, And... Uh, And then let it rest once you've got it to a doneness with your finger that you're happy. Uh, I know people make fun of all these steps, but especially resting, it's like it's voodoo or something. People just really resist this idea of resting meat, but it is a thing. It's one of the reasons why you go to fancy restaurants and their meat's doneness is impeccably perfect. It's because they actually pay attention to these fundamentals of don't cook your meat ice cold cook it mm-hmm. good and slow and just be really attentive to it and then let it rest. Uh, those are things people really, really, really get wrong. And lastly, I'd say around fire cookery is meal planning is usually something people screw up pretty hard and don't think about. They usually think about stuff that can go into pots and pans and make a gigantic mess. And they don't usually think about things that are maybe grilled that don't make a mess, like skewered vegetables and a steak. Uh, I'll be, I'll sign up for dishes on that in the field. But if you, I've had people make, you know, multiple sauces and pans, fried meats and then bacon and stuff. It's just a gigantic disaster of cleanup in a place that's very difficult to do cleanup. And sometimes water is scarce. So I'd really recommend planning your menu to begin with around uh, the type of fire cookery that you're going to be doing to make your life easy. And I don't mean to be lazy, be smart, mm-hmm. but you can be smart and also adapt to the working space uh, or the, the constraints that you're going to have in the field.
1: Yep, yeah, We, we had to pull a, a, a quick change in plans the other day when we were going out to film and and we had to shuffle from actually a plan to cook over the fire to using a, a camp stove to cook with. And so, you know, we quickly changed and it also turned into like, well, now the camp stove kind of opens up, opens up the opportunity. And then my mind started going down this rabbit hole of like, I can make some elaborate sauces and all this. And then like, well, then I'm carrying like a plastic tote of utensils and pots and pans on a boat and I'm like, "No. This is this is not where I need to be." And so uh I brought it back and and found a very simple, straightforward sauce to just pair with the fish, and that was it. And I was like, "Guys, we're just going to eat fish and a few sauteed vegetables, everything out of one pan." And that's it. And they're like, "Awesome." And uh I went out on a limb with the sauce, and it, it came out great, and I was super, super pleased. So,
3: right on. What was it? What was the sauce? Uh,
1: so I, I took a a rum. I took Cuban rum and sauteed garlic and onion with in butter. Poured the rum, which I'd also mixed with some honey, and then put lime in there too.
3: Nice. It's got sweet. You got acid. Yeah, I like it.
1: Yeah, and it was. Uh, Proportionate enough because i was really nervous that you know you think rum and honey and butter you're like oh that's the perfect dessert sauce and i was like there's got to be yeah. I'm, I'm gonna try to use the lime to sort of uh to to cut the sweet and just add another element of depth in there and it uh with the fish we prepared it just came through like amazingly so it's pretty strange. right on well done yeah thanks well let's see cory you, you had a question i see a note on here well, I, I want to talk
2: about his his favorite. I want to talk about Kevin's favorite meals or dishes over the fire. Cook over the fire quite a bit, so I want to know the the best ones, your favorite
3: ones. Okay, mm, that's a tricky one. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, I think technical accomplishment wise, like some of the 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 fussiest stuff I've seen, uh, that would that's really hard to do. I think I mentioned Hank Shaw and that. You know, just plucking a grouse to begin with never and to keep the skin intact. Uh, he's very good at that and that's hard to do. And then roasting that bird whole over a rock and then getting the doneness inside perfect and the skin crispy. Try that. That's not easy to do. And it's delicious when you're in the field, you want to eat that. Um, okay, one of my favorite... Seasonal things. I'm gonna. I'm gonna let it myself be guided by that. Uh, I mentioned the chowder in the spring. In the fall and September, one of my favorite things to eat, cooked over fire in our camp, is uh, the first rough grouse of the season with shaggy mane mushrooms and cream and garlic. Mm. That's one thing that just kind of. I don't eat it any other time of year. It's just that one moment, and it. I just love it. Um, I would also say fire. Uh, I just can't help but think of smoke. I just spent a fair amount of time. I had a lake trout from the Northwest Territories that was, uh, I guess, uh, 15, 16 pounds and uh, smoked half of it. And uh, delicious, like smoking things in the field is again, something I don't think we think enough about when we think about cooking over fire. Uh, Smoke is such a critical component of that. um, And it can be a bit tricky to get smoke to show up because we're, you know, your clothes are covered in smoke and your hair smells like smoke and it doesn't really, it's hard to actually taste it in your food, but, um i would say that you know give give smoking food some thought other favorites over fire man we do it so much it's hard to even peg what um peg which ones would be even cooked over fire uh from i'll well, pick one from our field cookery camps last year um cooked over fire oh well and this kind of comes with a lesson we had a elk braise uh in dutch ovens we were feeding 16 people and had two dutch ovens full of elk shoulder and learned from the chef that time around, and the elk shoulder turned out perfect. And it was bubbling hard. And I thought, yeah, this is going to be some boiled meat. And it was actually excellent. And the lesson of the day from the chef was that uh, water only gets to a certain temperature. So as long as you keep uh, a braise fully hydrated, that your your meat doneness will be, or your meat texture will be spot on every time. As soon as you let that water get out of that that braise, if it's bucking pretty hard then that's when you, when you fail. So, uh, that would be kind of like a, a highlight from last fall. So I don't know. I mean, on and on, 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 on it goes, we do a lot of fire cookery. So, so I'll have to leave it there. (laughs) And
2: one of, in one of your, uh, Instagram posts, uh, you had a hike in dining table. So elaborate on that a little bit.
3: Yeah. When we built the field cookery camp that we teach, um, when I bought that land, we'd, Talked about putting a parking lot in there and and the gravel driveway and stuff and just decided forget that like i'm gonna pave paradise here and so we'll just leave it as some you just walk in so we have a we have a we have a really solid well equipped kitchen for a a bush kitchen uh, that you have to walk you have to get in on your boots there is never been a quad or a truck or a nothing that has been in there. It's all every piece of lumber and timber and tree and nail and screw and plate and everything has been hauled in by yours truly. And uh, so the folks have to actually hike into this table before they can sit down and taste the things that come from that forest. So the idea was, and I, I guess the context is that I have spent uh, the better part of a decade f- pointing cameras at the local food movement and farm to table dinners and all, all manner of kind of the, uh, deeper exploration of that into the world of wild foods and people trying to make really cool culinary activations and experiences. And often they fall short because um, for a variety of reasons, let's just put it that way. And, and often it's because there's a disconnect with actual hunting and fishing and foraging and the culinary space. They kind of live in very separate worlds most of the time, other than for for some for some chefs not, but for the most part, yes. So, uh, I decided that I want, I don't want, you know, tourists from, and food writers from Germany and Holland who I do have on my events coming and and going to an event where they pretend they're under the stars. I want them to actually be under the stars and I don't Mm -hmm. want them to, you know, pretend to eat from that area in the forest. I want them to actually be in the forest and smell the forest and, the dining rooms actually set in uh, on the top of the hill and it's the whole hills covered in hazelnut and blueberries. So our first, you know, dessert was a a, a blueberry. Oh, it was actually a corn ice cream, but with blueberry cooked blueberries and hazelnut praline. So we're really folding the ingredients that that surround that table into the menu. So that, that was the idea. And um, while COVID has meant that culinary activations are very much, not so much a thing right at the moment, Um, our field cookery camps have proceeded, but kind of our long table dinner plans that we had originally uh, thought of doing there have been abandoned and I don't even want to do them anymore. Um, our field cookery camps are great and we have great people out there and I want to keep it that way. So, um, so that's what we do. It's a, it's a table that can accommodate 40 in the middle of a a forest that you have to walk in and get on your boots and get in there or you just don't get to eat there.
1: It's awesome. We, uh, we, we participated in a, a similar uh, so event I'm trying to think as outstanding in the field, I think is one of the companies that runs here in the States. Uh, they came down to the Florida keys and did sort of a Florida keys uh, special where the, we, we worked with uh, some of the local lobstermen, uh, some of the shrimp and fisher uh, fishermen. Um, actually one of them uh, we had on the podcast in our very first season. He was one of, one of the few, People in the Florida Keys that has a commercial spearfishing operation, so uh, that was that was pretty neat to learn about that, and then later sort of connect all the dots together. Very cool. And we were my wife and I uh, at the time owned a hydroponic vegetable farm down here in Key West, and we provided uh, the greens and stuff for it. So uh, it, it was pretty it was it was a wonderful event, but it opened my eyes to sort of those long table style dinners, and I really really appreciate those. There's so much fun.
3: Yeah, they are. That is something that uh, I'm sure will be back once things are back to normal so. Yeah. Normal-ish, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> whatever
1: whatever it's going to be in the future. <laughs>
3: um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Could could you talk a little bit about uh, the web series from the Wild? to uh, give us a little I know we've mentioned it several times and and you've, uh, you've alluded to it but uh, sort of maybe a little more detail I think the the listeners would enjoy
3: yeah uh f- from the wild was um at the time I started it the I was working a lot in agriculture and the local food kind of space slow food here, and at the time there was a gaping hole in as I mentioned in the world of of kind of like culinary food and and wild things so started the series uh again I mentioned we're in season eight now, so mm-hmm. started way back when a number of years ago um and the premise is pretty simple. Um, we go throughout all the seasons. So we are in the winter, spring, summer, and fall, uh, looking for, you know, anything basically in various ecosystems that we can explore, uh, culinarily. So the end destination is, uh, always, uh, a, a plate of food, um, uh, or multiple depending on how many chefs we have and how long we're out in the field. But uh, it's pretty much that simple. Uh, we've certainly learned a heap along the way. And I would say that the whole project has been a very personal, uh, journey. It's almost diary-esque. That's definitely not prescriptive. It's not like, here's how you hunt and here's how you cook food. It's really more just watching me and all my food industry friends kind of figure shit out and go, <laughs> okay, well, we don't know. We don't know what to do with this, but I kind of know what it tastes like. Cause I just put it in my mouth and I, have some ideas what that kind of tastes like and reminds me of and what works in that space. And then combining flavors and ideas and um, coming up with something that really uh, speaks to the time that we have out in the field together with our friends. So that's what the series is about. Um, It covers everything from ice fishing to spring bear, as we mentioned in foraging Um, lots of fruit, lots of berries, lots of um, greens and mushrooms. Uh, We've done a lot of mixology in season seven. So lots of cocktail stuff. Uh, and lots of big game hunting. So I I think in season four, uh, I was just cutting it because it had to be released uh, for television here. And um, I think at the close of season four, we had harvested 18 big game animals between two or three guys. So we do a lot of big game hunting and uh, live in a place where you can get a lot of tags. So... Uh, we definitely have done our share of that in the last number of years. So this year, a bit of a pivot we're doing, uh, i doing a lot more ocean mm-hmm. episodes. So probably do four or five out of 10 that are, that are actually out of the ocean and kind of the big kudos. As you mentioned, we had a James Beard nomination, which is a big deal in the United States. Yeah. Congrats. Um, congrats
1: for that. That's huge.
3: To be a Canadian. There's quite something. And then the last time I was there in New York, uh, we, I was up against uh chef's table uh, from Netflix and CNN's parts unknown with Bourdain. So there was the three of us there. So that's pretty big names to be pretty big company. So it, that was a huge honor. Um, and it's yeah. And just, just kind of plugging forward, man. It's been a pay-per-view series since day one. Um, and I've kind of l- reveled in keeping it there in that, We've had no censorship, no sponsorship, no nothing. We just really could roll our own show the side of food that's kind of ugly sometimes like gutting and blood and guts and nasty stuff that uh, no broadcaster at the time would have anything to do with and really have kind of genuine conversations around food and and kind of pick up the story where a lot of hunting shows and fishing shows had left off, which is like, here's the fish. Here's the, the rack of the buck I shot. And and leaving food, people thinking, yeah, but then what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then what happened? <laughs> and we don't get to see that in in uh, ever a uh, kind of and and in this season seven. I mean, I've I'm like shoulder deep, gotten animals like over and over and over and over and over. It's just part of the show and part of the process. So again, that kind of uncensored approach has been really really helpful for keeping us creatively on track, and I think creating some good content that's that's pretty unique.
1: I think that's, that's, yeah, that's awesome too. And and to have the, the freedom of creativity, I think speaks to it. Cause um, it's unfortunate a lot of times when sponsors and other things start coming in and start to kind of uh, alter content, especially in the, in the world where, uh, you know, hunting and fishing meet and, you know, there's the connection to the, to the dirty bits, the, the parts that make people uncomfortable. And some people don't want to, you know, uh, support that because they may be part of that population, and I mean, if people get uneasy around it. It's okay, but it's it's still part of the process. Like, so I, I respect your incorporation.
3: Yeah, as it is in the world of agriculture. So I think hiding from that is being really naive, and is is it kind of a cultural deficit? It's not to our advantage to not be aware of how animals are handled before we eat them as food we if if there's any any relationship with any food that we should have the most connection to and the most awareness around it should be the animals that we kill to eat. So uh so yeah it was it's become it's been really important to us from from day one.
1: Awesome. Well what's the um as far as getting into the pay-per-view and watching it where where should people go to to see it uh the series
3: um, all of it's streamed through Vimeo, uh, they handle all the distribution. So the easiest way to track us down is from the wild.ca. That's our website. And it's got, um, all of our, all of our seasons are just linked through very simple buttons through to all the different season pages for all, season one through six. We're about to release season seven in the next two or three weeks. And we're starting to shoot season eight right away. So nice. uh, from the wild.ca.
1: Nice. And we'll, uh, we'll throw the link in the show notes as well, uh, as always. And then, um, as far as people connecting with you, uh, if, if they want to follow your journey in this journey and, uh, sort of, uh, maybe if they have questions or interested in, in, in field cookery or anything like that, what's a good way to, to connect with you?
3: I'm pretty active on Instagram. Uh, at from the wild, CA is the is our Instagram account. I'm at Kevin Coswin on Instagram and uh, happy to engage there, answer questions there, and uh, yeah, and people can follow there. That's probably the easiest. We're also on Facebook and all the social media handles are are you can find through from the wild. Sweet.
1: Um, all right. Well, we're kind of coming to the end of the the conversation here, and we always have sort of a. A chance for misfires, alibis, or last notes. Any last thoughts that you may have uh, for us or for the guests, please uh, feel free to
3: share. Okay. I have a question for you, Mr. Florida. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. What's what's kind of the cultural norm down there for fire cookery? I mean, I know what it is here and I'm very familiar with it here, but I have no idea what, what you guys, how you would Barbecue or grill in your backyard? Is it hardwood charcoal or propane? And when you have campfires, what do you burn and what do you smoke with? Stuff like that. Um,
1: so it's a very good question. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll lead off with telling you that I've only been here in California or California. I've only been here in Florida for about five years. Um, prior to that, I was in California, and and I'm originally from Oklahoma. Um, but as far as so, where I live, I live in the Florida Keys, and it's very. Um, it's very restrictive on where you can and can't have campfires when you're out because it's a lot of national preserves and, uh, like we have the great white herring reserve and, uh, the Florida Keys bird sanctuary, I think is the full name, but it kind of encompasses the majority of it. But as you get up into the regular part of Florida and, and start to interact in, in normal, um, I'll be really honest as far as, like, I I don't know a lot about the traditions with over-the-fire cooking within Florida. And, man, it's it's a good point for me for some homework, for sure. (laughs) Um, Just thinking, like, the times that I've gone out, uh, we haven't – because it's it's very wet here uh, the majority of the time and humid and rain's off and on. So we often – take firewood with us uh, versus going out and getting it. So that sort of play into that element of not, but um, I mean, you have palm here. I wouldn't say palms would be a a good wood to cook over. Um, And then Everglades is pretty unique ecosystem with what's available there. You have different oaks and and other types of trees, pines and other as well too. So I don't know. Um, It's a piece of homework for me for sure. Do you have hardwoods down there? We do have hard, yeah. Okay, not as much in the Florida Keys. Like we do get some. So down here, they get little strips of uh, of of tree areas called hammocks. Is basically you could what they would classify as um, because the the salinity in the soil uh, in the Florida Keys is is very high, and it's a lot of like mixed coral rock and stuff. So it's hard. There's only a, a select number of plants that can grow here. Uh, as you get up in the main parts of Florida, like obviously the ecosystems change and soil types are, are very productive and, and good for growth. But yeah, there's hardwoods in throughout Florida. Not as much in the Keys though.
3: Interesting. So smoking, what would you guys smoke with? What kind of wood?
1: Um, I, I like a lot of the fruit woods. Um, so I, I, try to get my hands on, on, uh, just about any fruit wood that I can. I know that we will get like apple and stuff brought in. Um, I haven't played around as much with some of the tropical woods, uh, tropical fruit woods, but I, I should more.
3: Interesting. I mean, I live in a place, the boreal forest where it starts, it goes for, I would have to drive for, uh, 14 hours before maybe 16 before I hit like yellow knife. And that's where the. The boreal forest starts to end, and the tundra begins. So, we're talking like I don't know a, th- a thousand miles of of forest, wow. and we can have fire, fire fires anywhere any in that space. And um, we're the northern, yeah. we're the largest northernmost city in North America at Edmonton. So there's really nothing north or east or west of us that's bigger. So, we've got to, being able to burn stuff here and have fires is pretty. I, I take it for granted. Let's just say that. And I do find yeah. it interesting when you have different, entirely different plants, like where you live. Sounds fascinating. Like that's totally different than where I live. So, um, and that's the beauty of it, man. So you come visit mm-hmm. me, and I have completely different things that you know our our foods would be different based on how we burn stuff, uh, which yep. I think is just fascinating. And and part of the discussion, by the way. Of foraging in general, because foraging, I think, when you talk about foraging, people think of berries like blueberries and morels, but um, but foraging to me means everything from tree sap to to firewood to um, you know to greens, uh, salad greens, cooked greens, uh, you name it. Foraging is pretty broad, and and firewood is just part of the foraging spectrum. So, anyway, so just obviously keenly interested. I. Could listen to you talk about Florida all day because it's such a different planet. Oh, and our show Wild Harvest is in Florida, by the way, on the PBS station. Florida is one of the places that was the most supportive of of the show early on. The PBS stations down down there. So, um, Les Drouds Wild Harvest is for sure on PBS in Florida.
1: Oh, yeah. Awesome. We'll make sure uh, we, we put some notes in there about that as well. Cool. Uh, well, Corey, do you have a last comment or note?
2: Thank you, Kevin, for coming on and talking with us. It's I think it's been a a great conversation.
1: I always love talking about food. So,
3: yeah, no problem, man. Me too. Thanks for having me.
1: I appreciate you coming on. It was an awesome conversation. And like uh, you said, I could continue talking. Uh, I, I try to picture a lot of the environment of, of where you live in the forest and just being out and surrounded completely by trees and just doing a whole uh, over the fire cooking and just it, it gets me excited. So um, I'm. I think I'm ready to head back North a little bit and and spend more time in the woods versus on the islands. So, uh, there's more to come on that, but, um, for everybody else out there, thanks for listening. And, uh, as always, our, our show notes will be online and, uh, you'll make sure you're, you're, you're following Kevin on social media, go check out his profiles and, uh, go check out from the wild too. Uh, pretty interesting show, pretty interesting, uh, idea and take a journey to the plate which is cool so um outside of that uh make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and uh punch that five star button leave us a review tell us what we're doing wrong or tell us what we're doing right and we thank everybody and have a good night
0: a life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby 68 western move there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p m eastern on waypoint tv